This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on November 2nd, 2014. My name is Zach. And I'm Andy. This is episode number 83, where we are going to be exploring the cinematic subculture of the Triple B series, Bullets, Bombs, and Babes, with Hard Ticket to Hawaii, directed by the legendary Andy Sedaris and released in 1987 by Malibu Bay Films. It is the second entry of 12 within the Triple B series and stars Donna Spear, Hope Marie Carlton, Ron Moss, and Cynthia Brimhall. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? A Hawaiian drug kingpin, Seth Romero, plans to flood the island with narcotics financed by illegal diamond shipments to his private retreat. When his henchmen killed two DEA agents who are trying to stop the drug lord, the agency sends in two of its best agents, Donna and Taryn, to break up the drug ring and take out the leader. A full-scale fight to the finish, complicated by an escaped snake made deadly by toxic waste. That That is hard to get to Hawaii, pretty much. It's a thrill. It is, it is a thrill. Okay, so, yeah, it's it's the second in the uh, Triple B series, although it's really the, the first. Because Malibu Express... Okay, you know the, how the one character's name was Ra- Rowdy Abilene? Yes. There's a c- character named Cody Abilene in Malibu Express. That's the only connective tissue between the two. Are films. they brothers? No, they're like cousins or something. Is there like a a Triple B book, like they have the Star Wars ones that like explore and explain all the universe and side there, characters and their <laughs> relationships to one another? There, there might be. Because, you know, like Edie and Edie's restaurant is like through all of the movies. Or dig mm-hmm. To why on out. And um, there's some characters, like, when they're killed in one film, they'll come back in another film as a different character. So, uh, like, Eric Estrada's the villain in Guns, but he plays another agency person in Do or Die, the next film. Mm. Okay. Yeah, well, he's a, he's a Cassavetes. Yeah, yeah, he He's is. got a repertory company that he recycles. That he likes to use. So, yeah, Malibu Express is more of, like, a detective movie. And uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii gets into where they're spies. Mm. So there's uh, the difference. Like, Malibu Express is kind of like his practice run to see how to do this. And then he kind of, like, like ironed out all the kinks with uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. <laughs> yes. The kinks are gone. Yeah, the kinks are gone. Although, you know, a lot of his, like, his fascination with uh, transvestites is in Malibu Express. There's a transvestite Malibu Express. There are, like, certain, like, elements... That are in almost all of his films. Transvestites. Big breasts. Uh, 
rocket launch, ro- rocket launch, <laughs> ro- <laughs> rocket launchers, explosions. That same helicopter exploding over and over again in all of his films. They all end with that as like a climax. No, they're not or all. They're not all the end, but they're you all pretty much always see that helicopter explode in one of his movies. Yeah. So I've never seen an Andy Sedaris film before oh, this and, one. And, and like an Asian, some something to do with age, with um, some 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 sort of thing to do with Asia. Oh, okay. What was the Asian persuasion here? Uh, uh, the main villain, not Seth, but the diamond smuggler that gets oh, shot out. <laughs> oh, right, Ch- Chang, the British gentleman. Chang, whose father was Chinese. Yes. And then he also forgot the uh, the karate expert that was hanging out with Rowdy with the long hair. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that said, that the nurse <laughs> left him in stitches. Yeah. So I gather the impression that not knowing. Andy Sedaris, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a very uh, a a strong clear vi- uh, a, cl- a clarity in vision in this film. Yeah, you know that I could I could guess probably what other elements the tropes that define his films, and I'm assuming that you know Playboy Playmates are numero uno. Yeah. You have jacuzzi hot tubs. I'm guessing a lot, a lot, of, a lot, a lot of jacuzzi. In in inane dialogue that really makes no sense. Yes. Yes. Tangerine sunsets. Yes. Would probably be there. RC models. Yes. <laughs> I, oh, that's his main one. That's like that's almost that would be two behind the uh, the babes would be RC model. He does love an RC model. I like how he even has the dialogue. This is no kid's toy. This is an expensive <laughs> RC model. <laughs> yes. Uh. Beefcake Bros seem yes. to be his his mo. Hawaiian scenery, yeah, like waterfalls and and really senseless action. That was mm-hmm. kind of what I I assumed. I mean, large breasts, I guess, go hand in hand with the Playboy Playmates, but uh... and he seems to like um, at least one character that can't shoot very well. Yeah, That's, which that is a running motif. I wondered. Uh, I was going to ask you. Is there some kind of sexual subtext there? Because Rowdy can't handle a handgun, but he knows how to use a bazooka. So is he making a statement there about how he is able to wield his male organ? I I, 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 no? I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> well, I was leaning heavy, heavily on you here because you're the Sedaris well, that, expert. That's a lot of like. A, that's a lot of subtext for him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm only like I don't know. Most most filmmakers like like to hide their their personality and like subtext. And no, he just like lets it flow. He's like, I, this is my movie. I'm just going to make it what I want to see, basically. So I think. We've been before we sh- reveal our thoughts regarding the movie. Since you are more familiar with Andy Sedaris, could you kind of, I guess, set the scenery for the listeners? You know who he was and how did he come about directing nineteen eighties action films? Because he had an early beginning. Yeah, he did. Okay, uh, he was born in nineteen thirty one, and as you said, this film was from nineteen eighty seven. So he's already in his mid fifties by the time he makes this. And uh, that's because he already had an incredibly successful career as a sports director. 
He's won uh, seven Emmy Awards for sports directing, including for the 1968 Olympics. He directed the Olympics telecasts for something like 24 years, so both winter and summer. He was the first and I think the longest-running director of Monday Night Football. He was the director of uh, the Wide World of Sports. I mean, he's just an incredibly prolific sports director, and um, he's kind of thought of as one of the greatest sports directors. He invented the money shot, not the money shot, but the honey shot, which is the close-up of cheerleaders or good-looking women in the audience. He also had a hand in coming up with the instant replay and slow-motion replays. So, I mean, he's incredibly influential and important within the sports directing field. And uh, one of the things I said he did was he invented the the honey shot. And uh, there are interviews where uh, he talked about the honey shot, how he goes, we've seen huddles countless times. What would you rather see, a huddle or a pretty girl? And I think that's kind of how he make, made his movies. <laughs> um, I guess what it was was he had this long, successful career. Uh, he got to a point where he was had to be independently wealthy and could make whatever he wanted. He was friends with Hugh Hefner. They got together and decided, hey, we should make a movie with some Playboy Playmates in it. And that became Malibu Express. And that was partially financed by uh, Playboy and Hugh Hefner. Now, I heard they had a... They initially had a kind of like a long-term deal worked out. Yeah, and, and I think actually, that's the only one that... Yeah, it was broken because Hugh wanted more women and Sedaris wanted more action. Which is funny because um, one of the things that changed between Malibu Express and Hard Ticket to Hawaii is uh, Malibu Express kind of focuses on the the male character, uh, Cody Abilene, whereas Hard Ticket to Hawaii, on to the end, we're focusing on the females. So I do think that's kind of interesting how they had that falling out, which is what Sedaris ultimately ended up doing anyway. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know, but it is possible that when Hugh wanted a more of a focus on women, he wanted a little more, um, um, like maybe a harder sex in his films. Whereas um, watching Hard Ticket to Hawaii, his films are really tame if you think about it. Um, there's almost like an innocence to the sex scenes, and once <laughs> well, they get their pants on. It's a very juvenile look at uh, the act of sex. Andy Sedaris seemed to have a fixation on 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 breasts and on just good-looking women, not so much anything else involving. Uh-uh. No, and the choreography in the sex scenes makes no sense. Whatsoever. Makes no sense at all. Yeah, the the one where they're sitting on the chair, the one where Donna Spear isn't wearing any uh, lower garments. Yes, I have no clue what was. <laughs> What was going on? But uh, uh, Rowdy Abilene was having a good time, whatever it was. <laughs> yes. Um. So, I do want to preface this by saying that I didn't choose to watch this film so I could mock it. Yeah. Um, which seems to be the consensus on the internet, and I've probably mentioned this in the past, but I don't actually believe in the "so bad it's good" uh, mantra. I think it's a way for people to apologize for liking something. Yeah. As if to say they're above it or that they, you know, and that they're enjoying it for insincere reasons. And I believe that if you react to an experience with some kind of pleasure or enjoyment that you like it and you should just embrace that. So in this case, you love Ronald Reagan cream dreams. You should embrace it. (laughs) 
Well, around Rick, Dream Dream is Commando. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you eliminate the women, essentially. Just let's focus on the on the on the hunky men. But this is like, I guess, the ultra conservative cream dream where they didn't want to shell out the cash yeah. like they did on Commando. Yeah. I'll admit though, I didn't care for Heart Ticket to Hawaii very much. Um, I was actually surprisingly kind of marginally disappointed by how dull I found the majority of it. Well, um, don't bother seeing his other ones. Because they are worse. Yeah, that you said this is the best. This is the it. best one. And um, if you thought this one was dull, you will really find some of the other ones dull. Because Hard to Get to there it is relatively dull. There are, His films really don't hold a lot. I mean, because there's not a lot going on in them. No. And there isn't enough to withstand your attention. Because the stories really aren't even all that clear. Like, he doesn't really do a good job laying the story out for you. No, he doesn't. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say that I didn't like the movie, but I'm glad I watched it. And I definitely think it's it's a fascinating and very confusing experience because of many reasons. Uh, we can talk about it later, but it's a very contra- a contradictory in how it handles female sexuality specifically. Um, but it is very much kind of like an id film in the sense that it's very instinctual, it's very sensory-driven, and I think what I most appreciate about it, um, in some ways not that dissimilar to, say, like a William Castle movie, I appreciate its a commitment to entertain the audience, even at the expense of story and character, and how also, like, uninhibited and directed is regarding not its intentions, because I think those are confusing, but I guess the manner in which it goes about depicting sex and violence, like it's not pretentious, it's not trying to be subversive, I don't think it, it, it doesn't consider itself um, above the audience that it's catering to, like Andy Sedaris, as I mentioned, like he has a, he has a clear understanding of the identity of his films. Yeah, I mean, he's not Russ Meyer, which is someone that you might want to like put him with, because Russ Meyer also made movies with big-breasted women. But Russ Meyer always had like an eye of doing some sort of satire. And that's not at all at what this film is about. Russ or Meyer's a, a, a craftsman. He knows how to photograph a film. Oh, he also knows how to edit a film. Yeah, which Andy Sedaris questionably so doesn't know how to do how to either, especially edit a film. I mean, he really doesn't know how to do that. Well, this time when I was watching, I was kind of, I was trying to watch it with, with this in mind of how much of his career as a sports director, live sports director, influenced his directing of films. Uh, yeah, I, I was thinking about that as well, and I, I'm a little, I don't know necessarily how I don't it yeah. influenced, because I'm not sure whether he is a serviceable director given the films that he's trying to make, or if he's just a bad director. I mean, he's definitely ambitious, and he's yeah. got some clever, creative ideas for staging action, but I don't think he's a very strong technician, or he has a very good sense of how to stage a scene, which I would think he would know how to do, because he was so inventive in how he was capturing sports that he would have this natural gift for camera placement. I agree, but he 
was the choreographer, and he did help direct the football sequence in MASH, which is really well done. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he <laughs> only... Nothing looks like MASH here. <laughs> no, so I don't know if he's just able to... He has an eye for capturing sports, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And everything else is just confusing to him, or what? Or he just didn't put that much care into it. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, is 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 he just doing this to have fun? But I listened to an extensive interview with his wife, and, I mean, he was mortgaging his home to make these films. I mean, they had money, but they weren't extremely wealthy, and all the money that they were putting into making these films was their own. So yeah. they took it very seriously. That's what she says, anyway, right. when they would make each film. So I don't know what that means then, either. Um, yeah, I don't either. I will say, though, that on a scene-to-scene basis, his staging, his camera positions, uh, his different compositions, they vary in quality. I would say sometimes, I mean, there's nothing, there's no, there isn't any kind of imagery in here that's going to blow you away, but he, sometimes the filmmaking is transparent, whereas other times it really is uh, jarring, I think. I, I would say that Sometimes the way he just photographs the sequence is very amateurish. Like just well, he shot a lot of things like television. Yeah, I mean, I it's all very like, flat. Like 50s, 60s, 70s era television. Not like even television of the 80s, you know, where there's any kind of depth to it. It's all, like you said, very flat. And everyone, he kind of has like staging where everyone's just kind of standing in straight lines together almost. Mm-hmm. Now, one question I have. What is the aforementioned hard ticket? Uh, I don't... I <clears throat> I bet he just thought of a cool title, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. So this is kind of like Mr. Sardonicus. This is another film yeah. where the title doesn't fulfill the proposal it makes. No. no one in this film ever purchases a ticket, never mentions how tickets are hard to come by. The, a, a ticket is never mentioned at all, as far as I know. Unless it's like a cargo ticket, and that's what the snake represents? The snake is, I think, not not the concept of the snake. That's great and everything. With the cancer-ridden <laughs> rats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the snake is where it's most apparent that he's just kind of a bad storyteller, because the snake has really no bearing on the plot of the film at all. It has nothing to do with anything else that's going on, but we're, he keeps giving the snake screen time. It becomes so perfunctory in the sense that it's all in service so that the snake can arrive out of the toilet. toilet. That's what it was. He had that, he had that vision that he was sleeping and it just came to him, a a snake coming up through a toilet with a playboy playmate sitting next to it. And he was like, I've got a movie. But the only thing I was then when I guess the epilogue of the movie, Arrives. Yeah, with them on the boat. That had, that's and most of his movies are on the boat at the end. Well, uh, when they go to visit Chang. Oh, okay, yeah. Now, that's another one of these characters he introduces right at the start, and we don't see him again until, until the, the end. <laughs> Why he couldn't do that with Snake, I don't know. I mean, it goes back to this necessity to try and please who's watching your film. People love big snakes on screen. I'm going to give them a big snake on screen. Right. I'd actually forgotten about Chang when they went back to his office. I mean, that really wasn't needed. You don't think it was needed? No. 
<laughs> oh. No, you say Chang, you know, we gotta get, you know, they can be on the boat, and they can say, next time we'll get Chang. Yes. He's going down. And then, you know, the Picasso trigger, he's hiring Picasso to kill all these agents. Now, I do have, um, I have a theory. Alright. That I'd like to propose in regards to the characters working for the agency. Yeah. So I don't actually think they work for the government at all. I think they're like delusional vigilantes <laughs> who are living out this fantasy of being like spies or something. Well, it's possible because I don't think in any of the movies we ever see anything regarding like further into the agency than this group of babes and a couple of muscle guys. And secret messages via sandwich. Yeah. I think there's some evidence to support this. I mean, never once are any credentials or identification dispatched in any way. You know what? I think in guns, maybe, we get some of that. Yeah, well, that, by that point, by that film, they got it in their heads to make up paper yeah, cards I think, or something. I think by cards we get, I mean cards, by guns we get some <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> that would be great if you made a movie called Cards. He did make one called The Dallas Connection, though, like The French Connection. Mm -hmm. They never have any authority figures they have to answer to. No, like I said, I think in gu by guns you see characters like that. Yeah? Yeah. But are these characters, are any, anybody in this film, in that film, though? Yeah, Donna Spear's still in it. I want to say Edie's still in it. Um, now, I haven't seen any of his other films to really Yeah, you don't really, you don't really want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> to make this ju judgment or not. But I wonder while watching this if in, in any way is Sedaris maybe satirizing the tropes of action films by enlarging them even further, and then sort of subverting the role of women in these movies. I'm going to say no, just because, uh, you know, I, I, that just seems like too much for his movies. Yeah. And that also seems they give him a loftier humor that's already, that's running through his films. Mm -hmm. Like, the humor in the films are so, I don't even want to say juvenile, because they're not even juvenile. Like, I don't even understand the humor. Did you... Get a chance to look over that Glenn Kenny article I sent you? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, I sent it specifically because it kind of relates to that in that he recalls an incident where he had a private screening of one of Andy Sedaris' films in the 80s and where he ended up sitting next to Andy Sedaris during the screening. And the people in front of them kept laughing and Andy Sedaris kept saying to them, hey guys, cool it. And he turned to Glenn Kenny and he's like, what are they laughing at? And he was like, the big twist is about to come up. I mean, this is only one account, but it seemed to suggest that potentially he wasn't necessarily aware of the comedic elements in his movies. I mean, he, he has like a line of dialogue, like if brains were bird shit, you'd be a clean cage. I can't imagine that was... Well, that's the thing is, I found that anecdote interesting just because I felt while watching this that he had to be very aware of what how this film would play to an audience. I mean yeah. even in nineteen eighty seven, which isn't necessarily as cynical as it is today, but I can't gather that his approach to these movies was entirely um like earnest in the sense that he didn't know that he was writing punchlines making these films that were ruled by this sort of inane chaos that 
you know. I mean, he, he was definitely self-aware enough to have the posters that Taron was buying were all Andy Sedaris films. Malibu Express was one of them. And that one was even kind of... I mean, so he was self-aware enough to kind of point this, like, the the unreality of this, in a way. So, so I mean, he is self-aware enough to see that, that I can't imagine that he doesn't see this, that he can't understand that people are going to find this stuff funny. Mm-hmm. Also from that article, Glenn Kenny goes to goes on to say that they ate dinner with him, and uh, Sedaris mentioned how Robert Altman was a talentless, talentless hack. Yeah, yeah, he really hated Robert Altman. They really did not get along. Yeah, I have a book, and I could, I was looking for it for this episode, and I couldn't find it, so I guess it's still at my parents' house in a box. But it's called Filmmaking on the Fringe, and they just interview directors like Andy Sedaris and Bill Condon at the time, <laughs> mm. you know, before his uh, breakout success. But directors in, like that, Stuart Gordon, and most of uh, Sedaris's interview was just bashing Robert Altman. <laughs> really? Yeah, he hated Robert Altman. Now, you like these films, correct? There's like a nostalgic element to them. Like, I watched them when they were little. I would say starting with Savage Beach in 1989, I probably saw them as they actually premiered on, like, Late Night Cinemax. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know I would have saw Hard Ticket to Hawaii and Picasso Trigger when I was younger as well. And there are moments in these films that I do, that stick with me, not that I'm saying that they're good moments or they even make sense, but almost sometimes I feel like I'm <clears throat> like I'm tripping or something when I see a scene, like the skateboard scene. Yes. <laughs> and like so that like sticks with me. Or when Rowdy Abilene for some reason drives his motorcycle through the wall <laughs> of their house to get the snake. Like I don't know why he does that. But there's something about that that just gets me. Well, the skateboard sequence, why does he shoot the blow up doll? Why did he have the blow-up doll? What? <laughs> well, I assumed it was to mask the weapon that he yeah, was right wielding. Yeah, but right away the weapon. I mean, the weapon's, like, straight out. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that sequence in, um... In concept is very elaborate. <laughs> like, the, the whole staging of that, him riding the skateboard, then down to the jeep, then getting in the jeep, driving the jeep forward, ahead, stopping, getting out with the blow-up doll, driving back down. It's a very extended sequence. I mean, the image of that blow-up doll in midair exploding is... To me, there, there, is a, there is a truth in that image, and that was probably my favorite image of the movie. I also like that, you know, they blew up this guy with a, with a, with a bazooka, and then they're just like, oh man, we gotta patch up this jeep, and just start driving. It's like nothing to them. Yes. That's like throughout the movie. Well, no, there is no really contemplation yeah, about really the actions. I like how Edie's kidnapped and they go back and they like start making jokes. Well, that's why I'm saying these people are delusional and they don't actually belong to an agency. Is that, oh, our friend's kidnapped. Let's fuck first and we'll rescue her later. Oh, then there's the scene with the sumo wrestlers. Like, that's another like scene. Like, what is going on? So, I mean, there's scenes like that, and that's, like, in all of his movies. I think his, like, obsession with, uh, like, miniature RV mechanisms, whether they be helicopters or boats, is also another thing that I find really weird. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's just moments like that that, I don't know, th so these films stick out to me. I think they're easy to watch, although they can be kind of boring. The they have the moments like that where you can go, like, hey, look at this. 
and you know Donna Spear and Hope Marie Carlton and all the women are easy to look at, so it's not like that's hard. They're not necessarily even good movies. Like if you look at my letterbox, because I've watched a bunch of these recently, I give them all pretty bad reviews. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about them that's easy to watch, and there's always like a a moment or two that's like the blow up doll scene or the uh, frisbee death. The frisbee death. Just the fact that you got this guy with a machine gun playing frisbee with this just random girl. Mm-hmm. That she doesn't mind that he's got this machine gun. <laughs> yes. You know? Or the fact that the guy that with the gun was really hardcore into frisbee. And that he would like throw it like through his legs and stuff. <laughs> you don't look like much of a thrower to me. <laughs> I, I would say what I can appreciate in these moments that you're talking about that I enjoy. At least I get the impression that his films, they kind of coast on just a personality. And that it's a good thing that he doesn't feel beholden to machinations of a very stupid plot. I mean, he doesn't seem to really care about plot. He's much more dedicated to providing a movie that an audience can kind of inhabit. And I think the more interesting elements of the film come in the form of very, like, brief, random moments. Um, His movies were not made to be shown theatrically. They were made to be shown, to be sold and shown on, like, Cinemax. In HBO. At, like, 1130 at night. And so, the person that's watching this isn't necessarily seeing it from the beginning. Right. They're they're catching it maybe in the middle. And he wants to make sure that there's these moments where the person goes, oh, I gotta watch this movie again. And go, pulls out the TV guy and go, okay, this movie's called Hard Ticket to Hawaii. It's on, again... Friday night, you know, it's Tuesday night. Oh, it's on again Friday night at 1 o'clock in the morning. I'll either stay up and watch it or I'll record it to see it later. Because this scene with this blow-up doll is so bizarre. Or that scene where that henchman takes a message. <laughs> that is crazy. But you know what I mean? He wants me to take a message. Um, the uh, Michelle Michael reveal was quite the twist. Quite, quite, quite the twist. No, but that's what he's making these. So he isn't making, like, a standard movie. Where you watch it from beginning to end. You're, he's making a movie that you watch in chunks. And maybe not even in order. So the plot isn't important. What's important are these brief moments. So that's what his... And you can see his humor, especially, I think, in the scene where uh, the guy interviews the two football players. Yes. You can see his humor in that. Uh, according to his wife, that is a parody of the Jimmy the Greek controversy. Okay. Which, do you remember what that was? Yeah, I, re- I kind of remember it, but I thought it was something that Jimmy the Greek said. Yeah, he did. But I guess, and I'll just put a link in the show notes to her, this extended interview with her, but I guess at the time he with that the Jimmy the Greek controversy happened, Sedaris was working at a rival broadcast company or something, yeah. I, which I didn't, that wasn't clear. To, what does that have to do with anything either? But I guess that whole situation in the film was a play sort of on that kind of controversy and i don't know if he's parodying jimmy the greek or if he's parodying the reaction of people you know their reaction after these two guys say this it's very confusing in terms of a parody yeah i don't see how it's like kind of like a riff on what jimmy the greek said because what jimmy the greek said was way different yeah i mean here's a white man making a comment about African-Americans and Did you look up what Jimmy the Greek said? I don't remember specifically. He says something about 
African Americans like are gonna are dominating sports or something in there is because they were bred that way. Because it, and it goes all the way back to the Civil War. Blah blah blah. Yikes. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know. Is that bad? Yeah, I think you can kind of. I think you can kind of understand. In that case, what these players say is is nothing. No, they're just cussing. But I, uh, apart from that, did you gather any meta commentary from that? Well, I was wondering because the the sports director is played by Andy Sedaris. Yes, brilliant performance. Yeah, oh, I know. So I was wondering, was this something that actually happened to him? Mm -hmm. That's all I could figure. Like, I never in a million years would have thought the Jimmy the Greek thing. I just thought, was this like something that had actually happened to him? Or I even wondered if he's just, if he's parroting how paranoid TV producers or producers in general become. Yeah, that could be true too, yeah. When a situation like that comes up, you know, it's the end of their career, they're ruined kind of thing. I mean, that whole character, his, not only his character, but also the, what was his name, Jake or something like that, the sports announcer, I mean, they were completely pointless through the movie. I mean, the only reason that they were there was, one, so you could have the scene where Annie Sedaris looks at the waitress's breasts, and then, two, the scene with the football players. I'm assuming that when people watch this film, say, in a theater, and he shows up, they lose their minds. Oh, probably. Which, this is something I was wondering about. You have a nostalgia for these films, but yeah. from watching this, I was wondering, like, Annie Sedaris has a very large cult file following, it seems. Yeah. I don't know how sincere it is or insincere, I don't know. But I wonder if it's one of these cases where it's genre fans putting something on a pedestal because it's it's not mainstream or it's easily dismissive to people and they want to be like the contrarians to it. Well, I will say this. I, you know, I'm really into genre fair. I am at a lot of forums for genre films. Yes. And I think now, granted, I'm at some of the better ones and no one ever talks about him. You're, you know, uh, uh, Jess Franco. Yeah. He's talked about a lot. Mary Baba. Yeah. Uh, John Roland. Yeah. Russ Meyer. Yeah. Uh, even like you know people like the like David Friedman, Herschel Gordon Lewis, like those guys. Yeah, those people are talked about. Andy Sedaris is never mentioned. He's never talked about. These films are never talked about. So I know he's got a cult following, but I don't know who they. I don't know who these people are. And Arlene Sedaris is very vocal and present about keeping people's awareness of this legacy of work alive. She's making money off of it still. And, you know, it's, you know, she had a hand in making all of them as well. I guess she's proud of her work. Well, she wants to remake Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Can't be done. <laughs> because she, there are some things apparently in it that bother her. <laughs> I wonder what it is. Because according to what she said, this was the first film that they worked on as director and producer. Okay. Yeah, I guess she didn't produce Malibu Express. No. Mm-mm. She was working in TV or something at the time that he made that. And there's a certain rape sequence in Malibu Express. Yeah, I don't remember. If she had been there, that would not have happened. So I, I, I think there's a certain... She felt a certain protection to the female characters in these films, to making sure that nothing was pushed too far to the extreme. Mm -hmm. But the most fascinating through line 
during this movie for me personally was actually its depiction of female sexuality and how it treats women overall within the context of an action movie. And it's very confusing. <laughs> Almost contradictory because on one hand you have these playboy playmates. You know, nearly every five to ten minutes they're exposing their breasts for really no reason other than to titillate. What they do their wait, wait a minute, they do their best thinking in the jacuzzi. I mean they do even say that. Well, as Andy Sedaris once said, when you when you're stuck in a rut, go to naked body or a jacuzzi tub scene. <laughs> he loves the jacuzzi. I'm wondering if he had some kind of advertising deal worked out with a jacuzzi company in Hawaii where it was he has like, more, he probably shows more hot tubs in his films than Hollywood hot tubs. One and two. <laughs> yeah. So they're nude. They're getting nude every five to ten minutes. They're but having the is, sex. Again, there's even like an innocence to the nudity. It's well, only, yes, I mean, we top, only see breasts. Yes. Yeah. There's not a shred of pubic hair anywhere. There's not anywhere a pubic hair in, in sight. In any of, this, any of this movie. But they're also put in a position of empowerment. Because they are sort of these tough agency agents. <laughs> yeah. And what's even more confusing is that even though they're they're nude or they're suggestively dressed the entire film, the camera never really emphasizes the nudity. Oh, it never even lingers on it. If they're disrobing, it's in a wide shot. And and I don't know if that's just because it's a time budget constraint thing, meaning he didn't have enough time or money to shoot additional coverage, but the camera never punches in with a close-up of their breasts or any other part if of I remember body. Malibu, If I remember Malibu Express correctly, which was financed by Playboy, it's the same way. And that would have had a lot more money. And that one's a lot more slick. And another thing with the lingering on their bodies, their, uh, their, their cargo plane uniforms. Yes. They're never, it's never even really lingered on those uniforms, which they're essentially naked in those uniforms. You would think that the film sets up that outfit for something no, later never, and it never does, never does anything with it. There's also never any suggestion of sexual assault from any of the male antagonists when they're fighting yeah. in the sequences. Like the female characters, they never have to use their sexuality to seduce someone in order to gain the upper hand of a situation. Well, I think even like the the, the muscle the villain's muscle, one's a man and one's a female. Yes. And there are a lot of demeaning remarks that men make in the film to the women, but they're never depicted in a positive light. We're never supposed to like identify with that character. And also, every time the the men give the women shit, they give it right back to them. Yeah. Um. They're they're always coming back with some kind of witty punchline, and I would even say that while it is very sexist. In some way, the sexism is even-handed with how the male characters are portrayed as well, because really, the men are completely incompetent and almost dependent on the female characters in the film. And Roddy and the other character, I can't, the kung fu I can't guy. Think of it. Yeah, I can't think of his name. They both have these like personal hang-ups that make it difficult for them to dispose of villains or whatever. Yeah. So it passes the Bechdel test. Uh, which for anybody that doesn't know is is any kind of fiction where two women are talking about something other than a man. And I read also that normally when films do pass, it's because women are either talking about marriage or children, and that film doesn't contain any of that. 
No. <laughs> I, I actually think there's some, like, there are moments where female characters are talking about, like, being strong and being tough. I mean, oh, yeah, that's Don, not Donna, great. Donna says that to uh, Taryn at one point, where we want to be fit and be strong and something like that. I don't quite remember even why she brings it up, but she does. Well, I think, yeah, Taryn says something about, I'm a woman, I'm supposed to be soft. Yeah. And Donna scolds her for it. And I didn't, I didn't know this also either from doing some reading, but I guess it's more common for films that have lower budgets to pass a Bechdel test compared to a larger budget film. Do you have any idea why that would be? The only thing I can think of is um, lower budget films are typically more subversive. Yes. Than, that would be the only thing I could think of. Hmm. So yeah, you have all that, and then you have these very juvenile sex scenes, and it's a very strange depiction of female characters. I don't know what's intended, what isn't intended. I will say the the most enjoyable part of the movie, I actually thought, was I think it genuinely depicts a friendship between between two women fairly well. <laughs> Well, it runs the course of the series. Donna and Taryn and their camaraderie, the dialogue isn't great again, but I actually thought the scene after Donna shoots uh, drug dealer Seth Ramiro in the chin. Yeah. yeah, And she's talking about her father and not wanting him to be disappointed in her. And the way that they console one another was, I thought was surprisingly well executed now i don't know if it's like you know you're wading through trash to find the gem or something here but in that moment the performances were pretty good and i was impressed by their whole relationship and how they speak to one another yeah i do think the movie when it gets more towards the climax the female camaraderie element takes this backseat because ron moss shows up and uh We've got to spend time with those two characters, and there's just a lot of it becomes very action driven. I think in the last half hour, but yeah, I mean the movie's not like 95 minutes, and we're just hanging out with the two females until we have about like 20 minutes left, mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh, we got to wrap everything up now. So everything seems very rushed at the end. <laughs> yeah, and the the actual like final big set piece, not the not the. Not the snake in the toilet, but their siege on the house was not the scale that I was expecting it to be. He expected it to be smaller. <laughs> <laughs> well, the villain only, Seth only has like three henchmen. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which, I, really, the frisbee kill was the big set piece of the end. Oh, the frisbee kill was the best. And the frisbee kill, I mean, that's a creative idea. I mean, it's just taken from a James Bond with the hat. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. <laughs> I didn't really think about the odd job connection yeah, they, in any they, way. They just updated it to the 80s. It would have so. been funnier if if <laughs> that guy was more into, like, throwing hats. <laughs> yeah, but they got to update it for the, for the 80s. You know, like, you know, bowlers and fedoras are out. Frisbees are in. Today's henchman likes to be on the beach. When he's got his machine gun, you know? Yeah, a henchman with big sunglasses that is aptly named Shades. Shades. His name's Shades. We have a big file on him back. (laughs) (laughs) Sure you do. There's no agency. (laughs) What I love is that he's on the camera, you know, he's on, you know, 
Rowdy's watching him and everything, and then the close-up of him in the shades. Well, uh, his name's Shades. We have a file on him. <laughs> it's like he just made it up right there. Killed those two other agents. How did you even know about that? <laughs> those two boxes of diamonds? Yeah. They never go back and get the other box. Yeah, I don't know how Taryn gets it. No one ever picks that box back up. But one thing I will say about the action that's kind of interesting, I guess, in terms of looking at this is an action movie is that all the violence is very pure consequence. Like he doesn't, um, he doesn't revel in violence at all. No, he really doesn't. As soon as somebody fires a bullet, <laughs> someone is shot. It it changes a little bit during the scene with Seth, Seth Ramiro like stabbing, surviving thirty stab wounds or whatever. But uh, <laughs> the hard pain. Yeah, it's edited in a way where. You know, like, shot one, man fires gun or bazooka. Shot two, target explodes or is dead. Like, it's very cause and effect driven, where it, it, and just blunt. And it doesn't really glamorize, as strange as that sounds to say. Like, it doesn't glamorize, I guess, violence very much. Which yeah. is probably just, like, a necessity out of the budget or whatever. It's just, like, we don't have time to really extend these pieces out further, but I guess that all kind of comes to a head in the epic finale, Ramiro and the Snake. <laughs> Which, did you feel Ramiro, like, he's a really, he doesn't get much play as a villain in the film at all. Like, no, you know, he doesn't. We don't get, we're not privy to his diabolical scheme or... Everyone on the island knows him, though. Well, he just seems like a really popular guy. Like Terrence said, do you know who you just shot? What, a, what about the, uh... The opening and closing credit designs. I don't know, I thought it was kind of clever. He always likes to do a little something like that for his opening credits. Yeah, I, I uh, I liked the, the opening credits, and kind of the elaborate choreography of with the crates moving throughout the yeah. warehouse. So, yeah, it's real elaborate. But they're a far cry from those end credits, which that was just pathetic. <laughs> I mean, he just. Tape, paper taped to the wall with type lettering on it. Yeah. That was pretty lazy. Malibu Express has someone typing in the... In no the way. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. such an 80s thing. Though. At a computer? Yeah. yeah. I think it ends with, like, you know, Cody Eveline will return. He didn't, of course, but... Do you think Steven Spielberg watched this film for inspiration when he was preparing for Jurassic Park? Yeah. And then he said, give me Donna Spears' phone number. Hey, I actually think Donna Spear is, um, she's not a great actress, but she does have a formidable presence. She seems, she seems tough. I will give her that. She's got some charisma. She's got some, yeah. like, it's not, it, it is, but it isn't that far removed from, you know, having a bodybuilder be your action movie star. No, but... it's really not. And, and really, I mean, both of them, both Donna Spear and Hope Marie Carlton, they do exactly what they're there to do. Yes, and I think regardless of how stiff the performances can be at times, I do think all the actors at least seem confident on screen, and they seem very comfortable with one another. They do. I mean, I think especially the two guys, Ron Moss and the other guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, when they're kind of like goofing off doing the the Asian accents. Yes. I mean, they do seem like they're buds. Yeah, there is a. I do think all these actors, they have a chemistry. It's worth something. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. 
It'd be interesting to see if Andy Sedaris ever got to make a movie, like a Oceans movie, with all the <laughs> that big ensemble. What it would. Well, I mean, he does. I mean, like one of his, a couple of his films do take place in Vegas. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Picasso Trigger has some stuff in Vegas, if I remember correctly. Are they legitimately shot in Vegas, or uh... Uh, well, parts of it are not obviously all of them. You know, they always open up in Hawaii because that the cargo thing is throughout all of the movies. Is it fair to label his films as tasteless? No, not really. You know, I don't know, no. When you said that they're kind of like, you know, like an id run wild almost, I do kind yes. of see that, yeah. Mm-hmm. As much as I found a lot of the movie really prodding and just kind of like... I, I think in part that was... This movie in some ways was over-hyped for me a little bit. Yeah. Like, if you go on the internet, people just, this is the greatest movie ever made, this is the greatest worst movie ever made, and it's so insane, and it has some insanity, but... It's more weird than insane. Yeah, I... It's not, you know what, I I take it, like, it's more odd than insane. I think it's more interesting that just somebody managed to get this made, and as many people have seen it as they have. At one point in film history, HBO was like, yeah, we want this. Think about where HBO is now. You think HBO would be taking Andy Sedaris films now? No, I mean, and they would always show them on cinema. Fucking Game of Thrones was fucking built on Andy Sedaris' back. (laughs) Um, And you know what's funny? is like I always knew when the new Andy Sedaris movie was going to be on. Did you and your friends, like, come over and all, like... No, I would watch it with my dad. Oh, okay. He'd get a big kick out of them. And you know what's funny is, like, comparing them to the other films that Cinemax would show late at night. I mean, this stuff is so tame. I mean, he's making, like, Dallas Connection, which is 1994. If you compare that to a movie called Playtime with Monique Parrott and uh, Jennifer Burton, I mean, it is, like, night like, night and day. The amount of sex in them. I mean, it's really no different than, like, say, a mainstream 80s action movie. It's just with um, a million times smaller budget. I mean, really, what, there's one sex scene in this film? Yeah. And, I mean, they're not even actually having sex. Yeah, I mean, and it's hardly explicit. No. It's really just nudity. And, and, you know, like, other movies that were just nudity at the time, like the Bikini Car Wash Company, that movie is, like, bottoms off. So you saw way more in something like that than he did in any any Sedaris movie. Mm. I mean, if you think about it, his his films are are almost in line with what they sh- what what they would show in like some of those like mid to late sixties New York made films, like say like a, a Swallow of Brine or something, where they would just show topless women. Well, I honestly, I like comparing this to something. Uh as straightforward as like Charlie's Angels it's attempting to like achieve the same thing in yeah. its own way it's just this is um i think much more straight with its audience in terms of like this is what we're doing yeah it's not trying to deceive you that it has these greater aspirations that it does you know Charlie's Angels actually if ABC were allowed to show topless women they would have had topless Nudity on Charlie's Absolutely. Angels in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, there's no... Do- I mean, it is exactly Charlie's Angels. 
Now, one thing I do gather is that Andy Sedaris, I mean, I've mentioned it, but his objectification of women is something that really bothers certain people. And because I know you like Jean Roland so much, what is it that makes Jean Roland considered an artist? And what separates the two from one being an artist and one being a, like a, a hack? Sort of. Well, I mean, you've seen. I've seen. I've seen about three John Rowland films, and, and obviously, he has a greater understanding of form. There's no question about that. That's, that's the reason why. I mean, erase someone like John Rowland, put up some like Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma had just as much, if not more, explicit nudity mm. in his films. I mean, look, look. I mean, look at Dress to Kill versus this movie. I don't want to look at it. Well, I love Dress to Kill. <laughs> <clears throat> but you get what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. I mean, no. Absolutely. His any. I mean, I have to keep going back to it. Andy Sedaris films are so tame. It's almost as if a 12 year old boy is directing this movie. A 12 year old boy pre the internet. That's a good point. So I don't see how he can be called out, especially like like you said, his depiction of women is actually other than showing them nude occasionally. Mm-hmm. His depiction of women is actually relatively forward thinking. Now whether that. Like, that's something that he's intending to do, or if that's just something that kind of naturally happens because of the position he's putting them in? I'm going to say it's on purpose, and the only reason is because of his wife. Mm. How she produced his films, and I guess had a lot of sway with his films. Yeah. Like, I, I think a lot of mainstream Hollywood films that I've seen, women are treated and objectified much worse than they are in a movie like this. Yeah. But it's because this film is so blunt in, like, we have nude women every five minutes that it be, makes it an easier target. I actually, don't, I actually don't think it's that. I think it's, I think it's purely budgetary and the fact that it's independent. That, I mean, independent films are always, I mean, if you just look at the MPAA, independent films are always judged far harsh. Independent films are always judged more harshly than studio films. Do you ever think of a alternate reality where Annie Sedaris kind of becomes like a Peter Jackson where he's got his own like <laughs> he he's basically he is the Hawaiian film industry. <laughs> he directs the descendants, not Alexander <laughs> Payne. <laughs> Shailene Woodley, I guess, would have gotten uh, nude in that one as opposed to the Adam McGoin film that she ultimately did. Um I don't know. No, not really. I, I, I never see it like that. All I can ever see is if someone, and I don't know why you would do this, but if someone said, hey, let's hire Andy Sedaris to direct Red Sonia. That's all I can ever figure yeah. is something like that. Not like him being his, like being the Hawaiian film industry. And I, and I kind of wonder what would, how would that movie have been had he been working with like a competent crew and yeah and everything? I mean, I don't know. It is interesting to think about. Like, what if he would have been able to direct, like, a big-budget, sports-centered film? You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I mean, seriously. I mean, would he have been able to pull off... Like, I don't see him pulling off, say, the drama of Hoosiers or something. But, say, you know, that movie Wildcats with Goldie Hawn, where she's the coach of that football team. Yeah, classic. Yeah. Dumb humor, which he likes. Plenty of sports sequences, which he obviously can do. The rest of it is just kind of setting the camera up. 
it seems like he would have been a perfect fit for the uh, Happy Madison crew. Oh my god, yeah. I'm I'm surprised he didn't direct something like Happy Gilmore. He seems like he'd be their guy. Yeah. It'd be Sedaris and Dugan. <laughs> exactly. They would have brought in Sedaris to do the more complicated sports sequences. Mm-hmm. The, the hockey scenes in Happy Gilmore, Sedaris would have been brought in to set those up and do them. And that shit would have been kinetic. <laughs> it would have looked like real sports, I guess. Yeah. But it does make you wonder, like, I guess there is really a difference between directing sports, live television sports directing, and directing a film. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't need the same uh, qualifications. I think he, he just had very specific intentions in what he was trying to do. Yeah. And it wasn't so much about making, like, he's not one of these filmmakers like William Castle again, who was making B pictures, but aspired to something more than Yeah, that. I mean, he wanted to be thought of as, like, Alfred Hitchcock and everything. I don't think Andy Sedaris wanted to be John McTiernan. No. And again, it's also, I do think William Castle was still making movies for the theater, which means that you have to get people to come to see your movies. Yes. Whereas Andy Sedaris is making them to sell to HBO and Cinemax. So it doesn't matter if anyone ever watches it again. Right. All he has to do is make that initial sell, and he makes his money. So I think even there, there's a difference in that William Castle was deliberately trying to make good movies that people want to watch because he has to get them to come to the theater. Andy Sedaris just has to put in a couple of scenes that he knows people might want to watch. Direct quote, people look on screen and they see breasts and I see money. See? I don't know what that says about him. but I don't know if it means he likes breasts or he likes money. Or if he likes breasts made of money. Maybe, oh my God, that may, maybe would have been his favorite kind. He would have made a follow-up to the money pit, the money tits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lame. <laughs> so how many jive turkeys are you going to give hard ticket to Hawaii? Hawaii? Two? I'm going to give it one and a half. And even really, if you think about it, these films are even becoming less needed. Because if you really want to see someone like Donna Spear, Hope Murray Carlton, you can just find that very easily on yes. online without even having to watch a movie. And since it's Playboy, I mean, you'll, it's much more explicit than this movie is. Yeah, that is a good point to bring up that with the advent of the internet, stuff like this really becomes obsolete, I guess, in its in its titillation. Yeah. So the people that are then seeking these films out, it has to do with really other reasons, I think, altogether. Yeah. I don't know. Well, those sunsets, they gave me a boner. <laughs> hey, Colleen, you got a great ass. So do you, Pilgrim. The yacht of the villain, Mr. Chang, actually belonged to the guy that played him. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Oh, he wasn't even really an actor. He was like, <laughs> okay. You couldn't tell? No, well, he created a Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider and stuff like that. So he's just some guy you probably knew from TV. <laughs> oh, he created Magnum P.I., the Fall Guy. Really? Yeah. Wow. What else did this guy create? Okay, so he created Manimal. He created Quincy. Uh, Let's see. He created BJ and the Bear. He created the Buck Rogers TV series. 
or developed it, as they say, for a product property like that. Like I said, created Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider. He developed the Hardy Boys Nancy Drew Mysteries. Which Arlene Sedaris was a producer on. Okay. He wrote the, the TV movie Get Christy Love. He created Alias Smith & Jones. God damn, this guy. This guy's television royalty. He wrote for The Fugitive. Sedaris should have given him the script to do a quick, a quick punch-up on Punch-up, yeah. Very impressed with Mr. Chang here. So, Andy, what are we looking at next episode? Our next episode will be discussing the 1986 Australian film Dogs in Space, directed by Richard Lowenstein and starring Michael Hutchinson, former frontman of In Excess. And the movie's not actually about dogs in space. No. We looked that up. So you can hear Andy on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast and follow him on Letterboxd, where I can be found as well. Film Jive can be reached, reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. Please send all your thoughts and feedback to filmjive at gmail.com. Uh, hopefully everyone had a happy Halloween and they enjoyed the soundtrack of terror episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving. It's not paradise all the time. It's not, it's though. It's so you know? I mean, you know, you can laugh about that, but it, it's not. It's obviously not. <laughs> it's not paradise all the time. <laughs>